Should I put like two fingers up for the school teachers in the room? <laughs> I'm glad, I know, right? I'm glad you're here this morning. I'm Mandy, if I haven't met you. Um, Mark's gospel that Kristen read for us starts off with just a ton of speed and energy. So we'll just get to it. The author of Mark wastes no time, like in some of the other Gospels, with lengthy stories about Jesus' birth or childhood, those lists of uh, genealogical lists, like in Matthew or Luke. There's no extended prologue like in John. Mark just gets straight to it. Within just a few short paragraphs, actually, Jesus is baptized by John. He's anointed by the Spirit. He's called God's beloved son. He's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And it's only then that he embarks on his actual ministry. Um, He preaches the kingdom. He draws huge crowds. He calls disciples, 12 disciples who drop everything to follow him. He captivates with his teaching and his audiences grow. The crowds really grow and are awed by his healings. He quiets storms, he commands demons to come out of people, and they obey. So it's like the opening sequence of like a James Bond film, you know, where it's just frenetic and crazy. I was going to show you a clip because I'm a Bond fan, but um, the guys in the back said, oh, we have to do this legally. We have to not just rip stuff off the internet. So the still pictures will have to do. But Mark is a gospel narrative on steroids for sure. Of course, all of this attracts a crowd, but it also elicits a lot of opposition. The religious elite are scandalized by Jesus, who hangs out with the sinners, who claims to forgive sins, and he treats the Sabbath Sabbath as optional. And they try to begin to figure out a way to get rid of him. Yes, he is also kind of secretive about his identity. He repeatedly silences demons and commands those that he heals not to tell anybody who he is. A sense of mystery and paradox kind of surround Mark and surround his identity. The question really hangs in the air, who is this person? And as though the narrator is saying, he's the Messiah, but there's also much more to it. So that cloud of mystery reaches its peak at the midpoint in the gospel. Jesus takes his disciples away for a retreat where he asks them a question. He says, who do people say I am? The response shows a kind of variety of different popular views at the time. We think you're John the Baptist, or people say you're Elijah, or one of the prophets. But when he asks them, who do you think I am? Peter, who's always kind of the first to blurt out something, speaks for all the disciples by saying, you are the Messiah. And this is kind of the moment that the gospel narrative has been building to. Jesus' words and deeds have confirmed the truth about his identity. He's, he's the Messiah, the Son of God, yet here is where the narrative takes a kind of hard left turn. Instead of affirming the traditional role of a conquering, ruling Messiah that everyone wanted, Jesus predicts that he will be rejected. He's going to be arrested and crucified, and that three days later he will rise from the dead. When, and when Peter uh, objects to this, this sort of defeatist attitude and rebukes Jesus, the Bible says he rebukes him, Jesus rebukes him right back, accusing him of acting as Satan's agent and pursuing a human rather than a divine agenda. 
And it's actually God's purpose for the Messiah to suffer and die. He was trying to get the disciples to understand that. So it's super intense. Um, That's where we are, in fact, in the second half of the gospel, where three times Jesus predicts his death. Each time the disciples miss the point, and they respond with, um, I was going to say stupidity, but really just an act of pride or self-interest. In response, then, Jesus repeatedly teaches that anyone who wants to be a disciple must take up their cross and follow him. Whoever wants to be first must be last, and that the path to glory is actually through suffering. So when, for the first time in verse 29, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter, Jesus' kind of right-hand man, he openly acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. And this confession results in a really dramatic turn in the story. As Jesus begins to predict his coming death, it's the first of three what um, commentators call passion predictions. Mark is really fond of these threes and these triads. So um, we'll present these cycles of events during the phase of Jesus's ministry. Jesus trying to teach them something, the disciples misunderstanding, and Jesus then correcting their understanding. In each cycle, Jesus will first predict his death, followed by some demonstration of pride or self-interest, and then followed again by Jesus' teaching about self-sacrifice, about humility, the suffering way of the cross. And the the passage of scripture that the lectionary gives us today is in the midst of that very first cycle. Following Jesus' prediction, Peter rebukes him. And I, I don't think because they, we know who Peter is, and I think the word rebuke, I don't think it's some sort of like, let me, can I just have a minute? I just need to talk to you privately. When I read that, it reminds me of like Travis Kelsey grabbing Andy Reid at the Super Bowl. You know, like, what are you talking about? It wasn't like a quiet little gentle, I need a word, you know? I think he was saying, these people have followed you because they need a champion. This is not what they signed up for. They don't need a hero who's going to go to the cross. And after Jesus puts Peter in his place, he starts teaching about what the cross-bearing discipleship looks like. Now, I think standing on, on this side of resurrection history, it's, it's too easy to miss, I think, the bombshell effect that these words, take up your cross and follow me, or to follow me, you must lose your life, have on Jesus' disciples. I mean, their great hope that had been cultivated over the three years that they followed Jesus is that he will lead them to a military revolution. He's going to overthrow the Roman oppressors. After all, they have seen him feed the multitudes. They've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him clear the temple and raise the dead even. They've witnessed firsthand how his charismatic uh, ability to just draw crowds. They've heard him proclaim the arrival of the new kingdom that will never fail and never end. In other words, he is their longed-for future and their cherished dream. So what could be more just disorienting, more ludicrous than the news that this would-be champion is determined to walk right into a death trap, to surrender without a fight to a common criminal's death? So cue Peter, who takes Jesus aside and scolds him for being too morbid, too fatalistic. It's just way too un-Messiah-ish for him. How dare the good news hero speak such gruesome bad news? And of course, you know the rest of the story. Jesus, and is, you know, as I've said, is one of the sharpest, most stunning rebukes, I think, in all of Scripture, puts Peter in his place with, with one swift stroke. 
He says, get behind me, Satan. You are setting your mind on divine, you have set your mind on human things, not divine things. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and captures his message, the essence at least of his message, in really about two sentences. He says, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their lives will lose it, and those who want to lose their lives for my sake and the sake of the gospel will save it. And my sympathies are with Peter. You know, I get him. After all, he really means well. He has cared so much. He wants to protect Jesus. I mean, we can't forget that he has lived his entire life under what is, was the cruel yoke of Roman Empire. He has seen torture. He's seen death. He's no doubt walked past rows of Roman crosses. He knows what justice under colonialism actually looks like. And he's saying, haven't the children of God experienced enough hardship for heaven's sakes? Isn't it time to do battle, to win? Why is Jesus preparing his followers for more pain and more loss? And this is the way we usually react, is it not? I have a bias for action. I want somebody to bring justice when there's injustice. And maybe, you know, in our own context, all the stuff that's going on in the world, there's these two wars being fought abroad where the death tolls just continue to, to, to climb. The political strife in this country is so like, unlike anything I've ever seen. I, I don't even want to watch the evening news truthfully anymore because of the gun violence and loss of innocent lives. It's too much. So Peter's rebuke to me feels pretty spot on. It feels pretty poignant. Haven't we had enough of suffering, enough of loss and grief and fear and loneliness? Why is Jesus still inviting us to die in order to live, to lose in order to save? I think that many of us kind of have a vague understanding about what is meant when Jesus calls you to take up your cross. Probably something about self-denial, suffering. There are sort of, I think, two ways to go about that when we think about suffering. One, I think, is a temptation uh, to just minimize it, to give up dessert for Lent, to deny yourself Instagram for a few weeks, to pray more, volunteer more, study more. And look, those things are really good, no doubt about it. I am not minimizing those things. In fact, do you want to know, I'll confess to you what I've done this Lent, what I've decided to give up. I am moving my smartphone. This is, I want you to know how much I'm suffering. Moving my smartphone from my bedside table to another location so that it won't be the last thing I look at when I'm trying to go to sleep or the first thing I see in the morning. So, you know, I'm not exactly suffering for Jesus. But those things are really good, but they're not what I think Jesus probably meant when he invited the crowds to lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. It's not what he meant when he rebuked in the strongest possible terms when Peter tries to replace Jesus's cross with a shortcut. The other temptation I think we do is we maximize it kind of in the wrong direction. Have you ever heard the expression, so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good? I say it like that because my mom used to say that, and she was a pastor's wife. <laughs> but this is the kind of self-denial that strips life of all its pleasure, of all its embodiment, all of its celebration and joy. It's a single-mindedness, I think, that reduces the world to just like a grim mission field that it's like a landscape to conquer with an earnest, maybe, but kind of passionless zeal. It's the dangerous kind of self-denial, I think, that encourages people to stay in abusive relationships 
to make foolish financial decisions or in other ways perpetuate a, vi a victimhood. Whole theological constructs, maybe some of you grew up with these constructs, um, have resulted from some of these ideas. I think some believe, some people believe that humans are depraved and we need to suffer. We deserve to suffer. Or that suffering in some way will, if we suffer enough, we can exchange that then ultimately for God's love. Or if we just kind of white knuckle through life, grit our teeth for long enough, you know, we'll be rewarded. Or that there's some hidden virtue in suffering. And in fact, we should look for suffering to become better people. I don't believe that is what Jesus means either. I mean, I don't recognize that kind of austerity in the Jesus who plays with children, who turned water into wine, and who advocates for the widow, the orphan, and the outcast. Some years ago, um, I heard about this man named Arthur Blessit. Has anybody ever heard of Arthur Blessit? He, I think he was kind of making the speaking rounds at private Christian colleges years ago. But for 56 years, he has been carrying a, an actual 12-foot cross all over the world. He's gone many, many miles from California to Nigeria, Japan, Turkey, all, every country in Europe. His, his website says he's traveled like 43,000 miles carrying this cross. He's been written about, I think there maybe was a, a film about him, but uh, I, I don't know Arthur, and I have no doubt that his heart is in the right place. But I don't think this is what Jesus was saying when he said to take up your cross. So what then? I mean, what does it mean to deny myself? How could I save my life by losing it for Jesus' sake in the 21st century America? I don't actually know, and I'm sorry that you've listened to me for this long and I don't have a good answer, <laughs> but, but uh, I do have one possibility. M maybe we could begin by at least acknowledging that we live in such a, a crippling fear of suffering and death that we just use a huge amount of our mental, spiritual, and physical energy each day trying to stave off those things. To be fair, I mean, contemporary Western culture encourages us to do this. I mean, what would Jesus say, I wonder, to the multi-million dollar industries that invite us to deny our mortality through whatever, cosmetics, fashion, leisure, entertainment, real estate, weight loss? What would he say to a culture that glorifies violence but cheapens death? A culture that encourages rugged individualism and freedom at the expense of, of self-giving compassion and empathy? What would Jesus say to my own little wavering, frightened heart that prioritizes self-protection over so much else that matters in life? What if Jesus' call is for us to stop clutching at life so desperately, to step out of the vicious cycles of denial, of acquisition, of terror and fear, that seek to cheat death, but really rob us of the abundant life that Jesus came to give us. To take up a cross, as Jesus did, is to stand, I think, at the center of the world's pain. Taking up the cross means recognizing Christ crucified in every suffering body and soul that's around us, and pouring our energies and our lives into alleviating that pain, no matter what the cost. I'm going to assume that none of us here, I'm going to assume and hope that none of us here have witnessed a crucifixion. But, you know, in Jesus' day, uh, it would have been really familiar. 
In Jesus' time, no one was spiritualizing the cross. You know what I mean? Like, we wear cross jewelry. We have them in our homes. We, I mean, they're good. They're a symbol of our faith. We have one on the altar here. They're a good thing. But back then, they were not decorations. Jesus' disciples would have found the mention of a cross absolutely horrifying. The cross was a symbol of terror in the first century. Crosses were for people who tried to resist the domination of Rome. Crucifixions were meant to be a humiliating death sentence to make an example of those who dared to rebel against the empire. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm going to change all of that. I'm going to switch up what the cross represents. We're going to subvert all of that. Take up your cross and follow me. It must have been incredibly jarring to hear Jesus say that. You want to be my disciple? And by the way, anyone can. But here are the terms. You know, deny yourself. Take up your cross. From the foreword of uh, Brian Zahn's book, Postcards from Babylon, it's a really good book, Walter Brueggemann write, wrote the foreword. It says, as long ago as the 16th century, Martin Luther boldly voiced a vigorous either-or for Christian faith in terms of a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. By the former, Luther referred to an articulation of gospel faith that smacked of triumphalism, that was allied with worldly power and specialized in winning, in control, in being first, and being best. Sound familiar? By, by the contrast of the theology of the cross, Luther referred to the risky way of Jesus that is marked by humility, obedience, and vulnerability, standing in sharp contrast to and in opposition to the hunger for glory, the way of the cross for Luther, is demanding and costly because it contradicts the dominant way of the world. Rock on, Brueggemann. It is the dominant way of the world, isn't it? What Martin, what Martin Luther was, was saying was talking about there's kind of these two categories, this bifurcation, where on one side there's a theology of glory or of winning and of domination, the way of living that clings to life and to safety the way that can include or even encourage some violence. It's the supreme message, I think, in our culture today. And on the other side is the theology or way of the cross, which is about selflessness. It's about serving others, and it's about ultimately dying. This is, you know, not a good marketing scheme. This is not what we put on signs outside of our church. Take up your cross. You know, we invite you to die with us. The choice we make, though, as the people of God, I think, is between these two theologies. The theology of the cross, there's certainly a way of, I mean, the theology of glory, and there's certainly a way of reading the Bible through the lens of the theology, that theology where we focus or prioritize uh, the conquests of Joshua or the wars of David or even the prestigious life of Solomon. But it is not the way of discipleship. It's not the way of the cross, and I don't think it's the way of Jesus. I'm thinking about when, just before Jesus began his ministry, he was pulled into the wilderness by Satan and tempted. In the book of Matthew, I like the way Matthew describes it, one of the things Satan does is take him to this very high mountain, this high point, and he says, do you see this whole empire? Do you see all this down below? Do you see how magnificent it is? You can have all of this. You can do whatever you want with it once you get it. There's a caveat that you need to bow down to me. And, of course, Jesus says, get away from me. I serve only the Lord. Satan offered Jesus a way to power, to influence, 
away to the very top and to have all the power he wanted. But Jesus sees through that temptation because it will not come by the way of glory, as Luther says, but by the way of the cross. It's a temptation, I think, though, for us to to choose glory or the sword over the cross because, honestly, the cross is not super practical. The world is bad, you know? It has a lot of bad people, and if we could just beat them, if we could just bomb them into submission, if we could just get them to submit or dominate them, the problem would be solved. It's tempting to think that way. I do. This is the theology of glory. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when the crowd had come to arrest Jesus, Peter, who was trying to defend Jesus, grabs his sword and lops off the ear of one of the people in the mob that had come to arrest him. And Jesus says, put it away, Peter. That is not the way the kingdom is going to come. And I think this choice that we make as God's people is actually the choice between two Jesuses. You know there was another prisoner on trial that day, right? The, the Jesus being tried, there was Jesus the Messiah, and there was Jesus Barabbas. Uh, the name is pretty much where the similarities end. These two are the most juxtaposed people in history. Barabbas was actually a revolutionary. He was a militant political leader. He was not just some common criminal. He, came the clo- he was the closest thing to being the wartime leader that people really wanted, the one that would be able to vanquish Rome. And then there was Jesus the Messiah, whose message was that the last shall be first, and he's the one that was inviting his followers to take up their cross. In an article titled, uh, Hosanna to Crucify, Dr. Rebecca Eklund says, the embrace of Barabbas echoes the history of the Roman Jewish wars. That is the Jewish people's rejection of the nonviolent way espoused by Jesus and the acceptance of leaders such as Barabbas. I mean, there were other things going on for sure that day. There were Jesus, uh, the Jewish leadership was kind of making their way through the crowds, trying to coerce or persuade people, but Barabbas appealed to them. He was a well-known insurrectionist. He was kind of this burn-it-all-down kind of leader, win at all costs an extremist political leader who raged against the machine of the Roman occupiers. And that's who we want, isn't it, sometimes? We want a winner. We want a strong man. So how can I lose in order to save? How can I die in order to live? How will I embrace this incredibly foreign and counterintuitive theology of the cross? I think we could at least start by accepting against all the lies of our culture that we will die. Maybe by learning what Peter had to learn, that the way up is down and the path to victory is actually surrender. That Jesus' version of heroism was steeped in humility. Maybe as we move deeper into Lent, we can just let the question linger. Will we protect ourselves with numbness and apathy? or experience abundant life that Jesus offers to those who who ache, who weep, and bleed alongside the world's suffering? This is the question I'm asking myself in my Lenten wilderness. You know, how will I die? How will I die? It's not a question I usually want to ponder, but that is Lent, is it not? It is not by chance that the companion in the lectionary to our Take Up Your Cross scripture in Mark is this beautiful psalm that says, 
The God who flung the galaxies into space, each one with a billion stars, is like an alternate, an attentive mother or a tender father. He has not despised or disdained the suffering or the afflicted one. God has not hidden God's face from us. God has listened to our cries for help. We are not left alone in our troubles, in our suffering. That sometimes the theology of the cross or the way of the cross brings us through, you know, those sufferings. But we have a comforter and we have each other, thankfully. I thought it would be nice to just end if we could just pray together um, a prayer, the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Um, you can just stay in your seats, but we'll just pray it together. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Would you stand now? We're going to receive uh, communion together. And if you are newish here, the way we do that is ushers will come out and dismiss you row by row, and you can just make your way forward. There will be some servers up here that will serve you communion and say, remember the body and blood of Christ. You can respond however you're comfortable, um, amen, or I will, I will remember. And I just, as a reminder, I want you to know that no, there's no barrier to this table. We welcome all who call on Christ's name to, to join us here. I will first read uh, what Paul wrote to uh, the Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to bless this bread and this cup. May it be to us a spiritual food and drink and a means of your grace. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast upon us and taste and see that you are good. So that all may know your goodness. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Will you come? <clears throat> 